Hi everyone, welcome to the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. This is your host and creator of this podcast, Randy Kim. We have reached our season 4 finale, and what an amazing, memorable season it has been. Thank you everyone for tuning in to this season and for lending your support for this podcast. I will have a season 4 recap for next week, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, for my last season 4 episode, in continuing with the theme, Process, I interviewed Fook Tran. Fook is a Vietnamese-American author who debuted his critically acclaimed and now best-selling memoir, Saigon, last year. I interviewed Fook back at the end of 2020, and I had him reflect on writing his memoir. We shared memories of our own complicated childhood and how we are still processing our own intergenerational trauma today. I had a fun, meaningful conversation with Fook throughout this episode. Make sure you grab a copy of his book, Saigon, in stores now or on audio. Follow Fook's work on Instagram at Fook Skywalker. Trigger warning for this episode will contain topics on child abuse. I hope you enjoy this episode, and don't forget to leave a review on my show on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Season 4 is sponsored by Red Scarf Revolution. Red Scarf Revolution aims to bring awareness to the tragedies, atrocities, and cultural destruction the Cambodian people endured from 1975 to 1979 under the Khmer Rouge regime, and how that period impacts us today. With that awareness, Red Scarf Revolution advocates for the silence art, music, culture, and language with designs that incite the resiliency of the Cambodian people. Visit them at www.redscarfrevolution.com to check out their merchandise line and to learn more about their work. Please follow their Instagram at red underscore scarf underscore revolution or on their Facebook page. Hi everyone. So this is Randy from the Bunmy Chronicles podcast. So today I am really I'm here with uh, Fook Tran, and I'm really excited to bring him on. But before I do so, I would like to give an introduction of who he is. So uh, Fook Tran has been a high school Latin teacher for more than twenty years, while also at the same time establishing himself as a highly sought after tattoo artist in the Northeast. Tran graduated from Bard College in 1995 with a BA in Classics and received the Kalanan Classics Prize. He taught Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit in New York at the Collegiate School and was an instructor at Brooklyn College's Summer Latin Institute. Most recently, he taught Latin, Greek, and German at the Wayne Flett School in Portland, Maine. His 2012 TED Talks, Grammar, Identity, and the Dark Side of, of the Subjunctive was featured on the NPR's TED Radio Hour. His acclaimed memoir, Sai Gone, a misfits memoir of great books, punk rock, and the fight to fit in, received the 2020 New England Book Award for Nonfiction. He tattoos in Portland, Maine, where he lives with his wife and two daughters. So before I dive in about your amazing memoir, so welcome to the show, Fook. I am really honored. I'm so excited to have you on. And uh, me. Yeah, so 2020 is about to be over. And what can you say that this year has taught you that you didn't realize about yourself? Wow. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I think, uh, um, I think I'm just so incredibly grateful to 2020 for, um, for the challenges 
you know, like I think, I think, you know, we talk a lot culturally, I think we talk a lot about resiliency and we talk about um, the need to model resiliency for our kids. And I think we talk about that as teachers in the classroom. Um, but you don't really know if you can pick yourself up uh, unless you get knocked down. And uh, <laughs> I mean, 2020 was a real, uh, can I swear on your podcast? <laughs> yeah, it was a real yeah punch to the nuts. You know, I mean, it was really just so, so challenging. And, you know, um, and this is really sort of just an example. This isn't like sort of the focus of what I think of when I think of 2020, but like to go from ramping up the idea of like launching a book and like going on a book tour to all of a sudden being like, oh, just kidding. We're, you know, canceling everything. And there's this thing called Zoom. So I hope you like it because <laughs> everything is going to be on Zoom. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think it's like the glass is half full or the glass is half empty, right? And, uh, and you kind of just, you, you do what you can. So I think, I think it was, it was such, for me, it was such a, it was so instructive in, um, resiliency right and and trying to sort of make the best out of it you know and in some ways like that is I mean that is like the refugee narrative right like for my parents and I think for a lot of refugee parents you know like they come here like they've lost their country and 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 I think a lot of people read their story and they think oh my god how did you do it it's like you don't really have a choice right <laughs> like what like what choice do you have you're like okay sweet like we're not dead in a ditch and uh I don't know it's pretty good <laughs> so I think that there's so much to be said about uh, how our community, the, the Southeast Asian community, uh, reacts to a pandemic because our families have come from genocide, from uh, devastation, colonialism, mm -hmm. you name it. And, and I feel like in a way, uh, for some, it re-triggers them because there is this fight or fight, or flight mode. Uh, there is this yeah. panic of, oh my gosh, uh, we need to survive. We have to protect ourselves and our family once again. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, in our communities, we have also suffered great losses. And it's very tragic. And among those losses were survivors of the Vietnam, Laos, and uh, Cambodian civil wars and the genocide, uh, for that matter. So I think it's such an interesting way to uh, look back on what this year has done. And in a way, uh, what traumas does it uh retrig what 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 does it retrigger um mm -hmm. and and also you are also a tattoo artist as well and i wonder how has that been for you considering that <laughs> you're in a pandemic and the idea of being with a person for about an hour or plus i'm not a tattoo person because i'm terrified of needles mm -hmm. um i think the vaccine is probably the most i can take that's about <laughs> my level of <laughs> knowledge of that's about my level of tolerance of pain but i am terrified of tattoos so i but i actually want to know what has that experience been like uh and how it's affected your business yeah we're you know our shop is primarily um appointment only and um even prior to the pandemic you know we were employing um you know what's called universal precautions which basically means we assume that everybody has everything all the time um so we are doing you know, all the things that we can to protect ourselves and our clients, you know, most of that um, revolves around bloodborne pathogens, right? Like HIV and hepatitis, um, A, B, and C. So, um, so really like the, the new protocol is really like about like, you know, it's, it's about COVID. So it's like wearing a mask or sometimes when I'm tattooing, I'll wear a visor and a mask and we've got like air purification, you know, systems in place. But other than that, I mean, 
uh, you know, it, it hasn't changed a whole lot for me, you know, and, and I feel as safe as I can, you know, I mean, I think I look at, you know, I'm playing the numbers game, you know, like, <laughs> I'm not a math guy, but I certainly love statistics. <laughs> I don't, I don't generate statistics, but I love looking at them. And, you know, Maine's numbers are relatively low compared to the rest of the country. So I feel, I don't, I don't feel like I'm in any more harm's way than anyone else um, who's working. Yeah, I think that, you know, these days businesses are, uh, especially the mom and pop businesses and in your line of work too, uh, which is considered non-essential. Um, it is, uh, it is really galling to see what the Trump administration has done to ignore the, uh, the livelihoods of people who are clearly affected by it. But I'm glad that you're still continuing on in a way that is very safe for you. And also looking at your Instagram, I really enjoy looking at the, uh, the artwork that you have done. Were you always, was art, um, were you always uh, a creative artist growing up in high school? Were you doing a lot of drawings and sketches? Yeah, yeah, that was actually, you know, like my, my art sort of career, as it were, or my art trajectory um, sort of ran parallel to sort of my, my bookish tendencies in high school. You know, like, like in the book, we had to actually cut out that whole narrative um, just for the length of the book. And also because it was it just made the the narrative a little bit messier um, and, and sort of more unwieldy. But yeah, I mean, I've been drawing my whole life. And I actually, when I went off to college, you know, my, my intent was to double major in art and English, but um, I bailed on the, both of those really quickly. <laughs> but it was, I mean, it's there, you know, like it's sort of like in my my DNA, as it were, um, from very early on. So so I, it, it later in life, like I think I feel in some ways like tattooing found me again and sort of reawakened my, my love for the visual arts. Mm. And I want to say congratulations on the critical success of your memoir, Saigon, which is also a phonetic twist on the name of the city, Saigon, in Vietnam. Your book takes us on a journey from your parents' arrival uh, to rural Pennsylvania after the Vietnam War, the painful process of you and your family's refugee resettlement, the struggle to navigate the in-between of your Vietnamese and your new assimilated but not complete American identity, your love of punk rock, languages, and literature, and your own personal healing today. I have learned about your pod, uh, learned about your, not podcast, sorry, I can't believe I said that. Um, I had learned about your work this uh, past year, and I heard you on my friend Tung Wen, who hosted the WorkSleeve podcast and Jerry Wan's Dear Asian Americans. Uh, so I had just finished reading the memoir, and I was completely blown away. Um, there were times when I had to put the book down for several moments before I continued. There were certain family dynamics that I really did connect with, and especially pertaining to your father. Uh, you go into deep introspection through these certain events in your life that were often traumatic, but through your writing, it felt like you were in a thoughtful, understanding place reflecting back on these moments. So I'd like to get a better sense of what your process was in writing this memoir, and also did you expect, um, what were you hoping to expect out of releasing this uh, memoir. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, which <laughs> where, do you, where, where would you like me to start with a process, I guess? Does that make sense? Yeah, let's go with the process here because this was your first book that you have written from my understanding. So you're yeah. taking on this gargantuan task of writing a full memoir about your life. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's coming of age, right? It ends, you know, spoiler alert, it just ends at, um, graduation at high school. You know, um, the memoir really, um, 
you know, so in 2012, I gave the TEDx talk and, um, and that picked up some national attention. And, um, you know, that was the first time that I had sort of publicly shared my story of, you know, being a refugee and growing up in small town America and, you know, sort of all the things. And, um, you know, it was, it was, a, it was the first time that I had publicly talked about it. And I just figured I'm just going to swing for the fences and like talk about as much as I can in, you know, 14 minutes, you know, <laughs> like what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and so, um, and the response to that was really overwhelming. And I thought, um, and I was really surprised that people connected so much to, you know, my story, which I always thought was just weird. Right. And I just, you know, I never, I never shared it because it just didn't sound like anyone else's story. Um, and so I started doing like this live, the live story, live storytelling circuit here in Portland, Maine. Um, you know, it's sort of like the moth radio hour where you just like get up on stage and you have like seven minutes to like tell a story. So like I would do, like do like one or two events a year and they were all real stories. So I would like sort of write out like an anecdote from my childhood and then get up on stage and tell the story. And, and based on that reception too, which was overwhelmingly positive, um, you know, I thought, oh, like maybe when I retire, like I'll write a memoir. It seems like people dig the stories I have to tell and, you know, I've got a shit ton of them. Um, and then in 2016, my, uh, my now agent you know, sort of cold called me. She sent me this email and said, Hey, I saw your Ted talk, you know, are you interested in writing memoir? And so that's, that's how that process got started. Um, so, you know, I, I had the idea that I would someday write a book, but it was more like, you know, 30 years from now, not, <laughs> you know, in 2016. Um, but yeah. So that's how that's, that happened. What was the second, <laughs> second or third parts? <laughs> and then after, and then as you were writing this uh, novel, I mean, sorry, uh, this memoir, uh, what were, what was your hope that people can take away from it? What was your intentions uh, for the audience and for the community and for your yeah. family? Gosh, yeah, that's so, I mean, and I'm going to, I'm going to be like, really, like, if I could be super honest, and, and I, I don't, I'm going to be honest and like my pre my preface to all this is like I, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm like a total you know asshole but like I think in the writing process like I didn't think about the audience at all um like I think that that really helped me stay grounded and focused on writing the story the way that I wanted to write it um and and in terms of tone in terms of subject matter and sort of like thematic connections. Um, because I think like for me, I think like worrying too much about, will the audience like this? Will will people like this? I want people to like me. Like, I think like that had been my early life for so much of my early life. And I, and you know, it, it it's a fool's errand, right? If you're constantly trying to please other people, right? And seek external validation. So I think for me, like the book, the book was really like a private thing. Um, and so, I want, you know, there's a, there's a piece of advice from E.B. White, you know, and he says, when you're writing, um, you're writing for an audience of one, meaning yourself. Um, and so that really helped me stay true to myself and, and how I wanted to write it. Um, and I think, you know, I think like what, it's hard for me to say what I thought, I, I didn't have expectations for what readers would get from it, because I think, um, like readers are like the, the, the giant X factor in the whole equation of like, how does a book do in the marketplace? You know, like you don't know what readers are going to bring, like in terms of their own baggage and experience um, and, and their own expectations. You know, like I think it's it's just so interesting to me, like the book, any any piece of art really is like a Rorschach test for the reader, right? Like 
like the number of people who have written me and been like, your book was hilarious. You know, like it was laugh out loud every page. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I mean, they're definitely like funny parts. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I would say like, you know, it was my intent for it to be like, sort of like David Sedaris funny, you know, like I obviously like have a good sense of humor, I think, you know. Um, and then there are other people who I think are struck by the trauma of it. And, um, and, and I think it's also like a false dichotomy, right? Like it's not this, it's not, it, you know, either or it's both and right like that's life right like that is my life and i think that's many people's lives right like there's there's like moments of deep hilarity and then moments of deep deep tragedy and um and i think you know we can celebrate and sort of revel in, in both those things so um yeah you bring up an interesting reminder here and i'm glad that you uh brought this to the table because uh for a lot of us in the asian american community we are conditioned to play it safe to do what is acceptable in a country that doesn't understand us. And so when you write a story, um, I would hear this from other writers and from people who are non-writers and they're thinking, well, I don't have a story to tell. I don't know if it's going to be interesting enough. And I, and I keep thinking back to the times where our narratives were never discussed in mainstream media. It was never discussed in the history books. They weren't talking about our stories, our humanity in trauma, mm. our humanity in our successes, our humanity in our failures. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that this is a very important uh, reminder of writing for yourself because if you don't write, then someone's gonna write that for you in a way that's not consenting. And then also mm -hmm. that paints us as question marks, who are we once again? So I think that what you're doing is you are working to dismantle, um, dismantle uh, the the falsehoods that many um, non Asian Americans have of our community. And mm. but also I, I think it's also a really important reminder to write for yourself unapologetically, and and by doing so, you're not diluting yourself. You're not cheating yourself from having to uh, please others to make people comfortable, specifically with white people. Um, yeah, you don't sure. You don't tell stories to make white people feel good about themselves in their own savior complex here. Um, this book, totally. your book and Viet Thanh Nguyen's and Kathy Park Hong's among, among many others mm -hmm. who are writing to critically um, challenge that, but to critically challenge that is just really living our own truths, right? Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, yeah and I would like to know about your own uh, upbringing in the in the town of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. What can you describe about that town, and <laughs> what was your relationship with that town growing up? Because for me, I grew up outside of Chicago. I grew up in Westmont, which is a which is a blue collar city um, or blue collar town. Um, it's about maybe 30, 40 minutes away from the city, and it was predominantly white. Uh, which is something that I can resonate with. And I would like to get your a better sense of what Carlisle was for you. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was, um, yeah, I mean, it was just like a, it, you know, it was part of that rural stretch of Pennsylvania, right? That's like sandwiched in between Philly and Pittsburgh. You know, it's like South Central PA. And it was just like small town America in like the 70s and the 80s, you know, um, um Gosh, I mean, it, it seemed pretty normal, you know, like we had a high school and there was like, you know, football teams and cheerleaders and, you know, like there were, you know, kids who like, you know, the auto shop kids who like worked on their cars and, 
you know, there was, I think like the two sort of maybe interesting features were, were that we had like a college in our town as well, Dickinson College, um, you know, but Dickinson, you know, was a little bit separated from the town, even its campus, even though it's embedded in the town, like I think like the Dickinson students stayed on campus and like we as townies were very clear when we were, or we were very aware of when we were like sort of trespassing as it were on Dickinson campus, which we did all the time, right? Um, and then, um, you know, and then there was an, the Army War College. Um, and so there was, there was like a small handful of families and kids who would come through who were international or at least not from Carlisle who, um, whose parents were affiliated with the Army War College. But, you know, otherwise like it felt pretty, normal, at least in retrospect, it seemed pretty normal um, and very kind of like small town America in all the sort of like best and worst ways, I think. Um, you know, like the best ways were like, you know, you could like wander all over town on your bike and like, you know, and come home in time for dinner at night. And, you know, like, like the town was very small. So like you could like go from town, like from one end of town to the other and back and forth again on your bike, like all day long. Um, but, you know, the downsides, I think the downsides for, you know, black and brown people were it was very white and pretty provincial and um, not always super welcoming, you know, I mean, like, so, I mean, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I don't want to belabor like the, the sort of like racialized elements of it, because I don't want to make it seem like it was specific to Carlisle. Like, they, I think that was certainly my error growing up was that I, I just assigned every every shitty thing that I experienced to like Carlisle and be like, oh, well, when I moved to New York City or when I moved to, you know, Philly or Boston, like there's no racism there because it's a big city, <laughs> right? And we, we, we both know it's just like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's America's problem, right? Like it's not small town problem or big city problem. It's, it's everybody's problem. So, um, yeah. Great point there because I just moved back to Westmont uh, very recently to watch over my parents who are elderly. And and looking back, um, I've always had a very frustrating experience with Westmont. But then, you know, living in Korea for a few years and then living in Chicago uh, for a few years, yes, it was a upgrade to me. But there were also moments where I felt very othered. Uh, there were moments where I felt very isolated and even living in a big city that's supposed to be um, for Korea, which is Asian uh, minority or Asian majority. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm also a minority because I'm Southeast Asian. So I do I would not ever fit into their uh, into their society. And then uh, living in Chicago, there's serious segregation, there's police violence, there's ice raids in uh, Black, Latinx, and Asian communities. So there's there's different dynamics that are going on in places that, uh, that you do live. So I think you do point out that, yeah, not all of my horrible experiences are tied to Westmont. Uh, I think that you make up a very important point that it is America's problem. And this is not just a rural exurb community issue here. This is a systemic issue across the U.S. Um, so how do you feel about Carlisle now? And <laughs> and what does Carlisle, Carlisle look like now than it did back in the 80s? Um, I mean, I don't, yeah. I You know, my parents moved away in the late 90s. So I have not like been there or spent any 
amount of time there in 20-ish years, you know, almost 30 years now at this point. Um, so I can't, you know, um, I went back for a research trip and, you know, uh, in 2017 or 18, I think, and 2018, I went back for a quick research trip. And, you know, as far as I can tell, I mean, like there are things that are different and there are things that are exactly the same. Um, you know, I think I, I've heard from a lot of readers and friends and, um, and former classmates who are still there, who feel like it's a different place, like it's better, better than it was, I think. Um, you know, I, I have to take their word for it. Um, so I can't really say, um, yeah. So I, I, I guess I not being a, you know, not living there now, I think it's, it's not my place to say or, or to give any kind of assessment for, you know, what it is now. Um, but I can only give you my impressions when I went back a couple of years ago. Mm, thank you. And so your father, um, going into your memoir, your father was a lawyer in Saigon. And my understanding was that your parents worked in the U.S. Embassy. Is that correct? Grandparents, yeah. Grandparents. Yeah. And, you know, my father was actually an English translator at the U.S. Embassy in Phnom Penh, which is interesting parallel, interesting connection yeah. that I was making in this book. But in America, your father was also working a blue collar job. And you shared about how your father was getting teased by his co-workers for having poor pronunciation. And I think about my father who went through something similar with his co-workers and the resentment that he felt at having to work at a job that he felt was beneath him. And I look at thinking about your own father, like your father has had a very respectable job. There was prestige in being a lawyer in wartime Vietnam. Mm. And to go into a country where you have to completely start all over and people are not caring about your educational background and how smart you are. And, and for him to get belittled by his own coworkers mm. must have felt, um, must have felt so traumatizing and 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 condition him to be in a way bitter because my father felt that way for a number of years working as a metal welder i mean this is something that he never dreamed of doing and and do you believe your father's job in america furthered fiota's anger towards you and your family and this insatiable need to push you and your brother to be exceptional and carry out his unfulfilled dreams Oh, yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I, I'll say this, you know, like I, you know, just as a, a gentle corrective, like I think, you know, um, I think there, there was definitely some, a lot of anger and some bitterness um, in my father's life in Carlisle. I don't know if it was, I don't know where it came from. Like, I think, you know, on rec on record, public record anyway, like, uh, on the 40th anniversary of their arrival um, or the fall of Saigon, um, my dad was interviewed by like a local Pennsylvania paper. Um, they like tracked him down. The, my parents live in Southern California now in Orange County. And, um, and they interviewed my parents um, about coming to Carlisle and coming to America in 1975. You know, this is like 40 years after. So this article came out in um, 20, what is this, 2015. And, um, and my dad was like, nothing, had nothing but gratitude in the article. And, and I think that is his public position. You know, like, I think he is forever grateful um, that, you know, we got a second chance. Um, I mean, I don't, it's, it, you know, it's ha so hard to say where sort of my dad's um, sort of intensity comes from, you know, like, I think, you know, I, I think it's, 
not helpful in my mind anyway, because it's like kind of a fruitless exercise just to wonder, like, would he have been exactly the same in Vietnam, right? Like, like, you know, and there's like this like kind of, you know, idea of intergenerational trauma, right? That like he was abused as a kid by his mother. And like, so, you know, then he parents the only way he knows how, which is like to beat the shit out of his own kids. And, and it's not until sort of like the cultural milieu changes that he's like, oh, I guess I can't do this anymore, right? Because um, certainly like in Vietnam, like it was totally normal to like, you know, beat the shit out of your kids. Like nobody, like it wasn't called beating the shit out of your kids. It was just called parenting, right? <laughs> um, and so like there was, there was nothing that would have told him that that was wrong um, because like it certainly wasn't wrong for my grandmother to like beat the hell out of my dad. Um, so I think, you know, like, I, yeah, I mean, and I, th I don't even know if he's got the language, you know, as, as we know, like, I think our, our parents just, they don't, they lack so much vocabulary and sort of like emotional awareness around their own sort of internal processes to talk about why they feel the way they feel, or, you know, like, I think like that, like therapatizing um, effect of Western culture, which I think is a positive thing that, that, that ability, ability or the, um, permission to talk about an internal life, to talk about how you're feeling, to talk about disappointment like that, that's not available to my parents, like not in the way that it is to me or to you, you know, growing up here in the U.S. So, you know, and again, I, I can't speculate on what it is that makes, you know, makes my dad tick or, or what makes him be sort of like what made him push me and my brother. You know, it was certainly like the immigrant thing, right? Like coming here, or the refugee thing, right? Coming here and just being like, okay, like we made sacrifices. So you guys don't fuck this up. Like you better do well in school and you know, all this stuff, you know? Yeah. Mm. And I think as I will dive deeper into this uh, memoir, um, I think about this a lot uh, with my own parents, especially as they get older and, you know, my father and I've had a very, very difficult relationship. And he also had serious mental health issues as a result of surviving the genocide. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel like when you are not when, he, when he and so many other survivors of the the Southeast Asian uh, atrocities that were happening, um, there was no room or space for them to heal. Uh, when they arrive into the US or in Australia or in other Western countries, there was no counseling support. There was no opportunity for them to just um, put their bags down and just uh, heal, or at least have the opportunity to hear, have someone hear of their own struggles, their trauma, yeah. instead they were forced to go into work like three days later. I mean, my mom's family, like after, you know, arriving from the camps, it was get to work in three days. And yeah. so there was no time to process all of this, uh, of this trauma and what to make out of, of what do we do next? How do we survive? How do we position our kids to, to make a living in this country and to do it well? So that way mm. we aren't going to be entrenched in uh, a lifetime of poverty. Yeah. So um, do you think? There, do you mm -hmm. think? Do you think that like that's a cultural piece? That that's that's what was like that. Even if they had stayed like in you know um, in Southeast Asia, like I don't I don't know if there's like a cultural blueprint for what healing looks like, right? Like for the mental health piece. It's a great question. I I think that. Um, 
you know, serving on the board for the Cambodian Museum, uh, part of the, the work that we do is to preserve uh, the arts and music um, program. And what I have learned uh, working with one of our resident musicians was that, that a lot of the survivors use music mm-hmm. as therapy to, to storytell, but to use music because mm-hmm. Cambodian arts, um, I'm not exactly familiar with Vietnamese arts, uh, but I will say that in the Cambodian tradition, it is a big part of our identity. It's part of our own healing. It's part of mm-hmm. our own way to navigate losses. Because if you hear Cambodian music, like the ballads, you hear this woman crying, wailing in the background as she's singing, which is, <laughs> yeah, which I cannot sit through. But you hear these <laughs> depressing songs, but they're coming from a very valid place. It, it yeah. feels like yeah, it's yeah, yeah. you're you're literally w- witnessing a person's uh, sadness uh, yeah. in front of you, but it is part of that healing process. But yeah, I, I think of how do we use uh, how do we use therapy in a way that's not so completely westernized? Uh, how do we incorporate parts of of cultures that we connect to? Uh, mm. Because does does our elder like I know like when I've had to take my dad to a psychiatrist, like he's talking to a person in a white wall and with no personality with no understanding of what the genocide was and it's hard to sit through sometimes Mm -hmm. because i feel like i am punishing my dad by doing this uh and i think about all these survivors who are and not just survivors but our generation our millennial folks uh people who were born well after the war and what it does to our psyche when we are conditioned to deal with the racism, to deal with our parents' trauma, our grandparents' trauma, and taking on the weight of these expectations that overwhelm us, right? Mm-hmm. And also the environment that we grew up in, too, whether it's in an exurb rural community or mm-hmm. in an urban area where there's uh, also rampant poverty and violence. So mm-hmm. it's, um, it's, it's a lifetime of trauma that's hard to unpack and to break out of, right? Um, mm-hmm. There is a part in your book on page 37, and I'd like to, uh, you know, read this excerpt here. And it's, called, it's also on chapter two, beginning of chapter two of Crime and Punishment. Uh, you write, violence, physical violence simmered as an unstable agent in my family's chemistry. Parents spanked, parents spanked and beat their kids. Siblings struck one another. Cousins punched cousins. Grandparents smacked their grandkids. Pillow fights turned into fist fights. Am I missing anything? I had no reference for what was normal. Behavior that I now in adulthood recognize as excessive, I accepted as wholesale as a child. My family's thermodynamics were volatile and explosive, but this was our reality. Violence and the threat of violence darkened the rosy tint of childhood. Sometimes violence settled disputes. Sometimes it splintered into more problems. It was how my family expressed their feelings of anger and disappointment and even love. They beat us because they cared for us, because they loved us, because they beat us. Maybe you were the victim of violence. Maybe you were the perpetrator. Maybe you were just an innocent bystander. At some point in the Tran family, you would be all three. The Troika. So, I want to uh, get your response to this uh, when you wrote the uh, part. And... um, what effect did the violence and punishment from your family have on you growing up? Gosh, um, I mean, I, you know, um, 
I mean, that's a, that's a layered question, right? Like I think, um, I mean, just from the, you know, there's, there's certainly the physical sort of harm that it caused. Um, there's sort of the emotional piece of it, right? That, that you don't feel like, you don't feel like you can trust people in your family, like the people who you want to trust or you want to turn to, right? In moments of crisis, like all of a sudden now you're like, well, that person's just going to like beat the shit out of me. Cause like, I, you know, did something wrong or need help. Right. And, um, um, so I think for me, I'll just speak for myself. Like I, I think like it, it made me certainly, um, distrustful of a lot of my family members or like, um, you know, because especially the older ones, right. Cause you think like, you know, as a, as a young person, right. As like the small child in the family, like you think, okay, like, isn't it like the adult's job to like take care of me, right? And like to protect me, you know, like if I'm the least able, you know, and have the least agency in my family, um, it seemed to make sense to me that those people should look out for me, but they were also the people who were the first to sort of like inflict harm on you. Like, um, you know, like I got beat by my family long before I got beat up by bullies on the playground. Um, so that, I mean, so, you know, I think there's, there's that piece of it. Um, yeah, so I think, I, and then I think, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'll leave it at that, you know, like, I don't, <laughs> like, I, I'm not a clinician, so I can't really diagnose, you know, all the other ways in which um, that violence has affected me, but I think those are the, the big pieces, and then I think, like, and then I think growing up, like, I knew, you know, when I was entering fatherhood, that, like, I, I needed to go to counseling, because I didn't, I didn't want to parent, like, my parents parented me, but I also knew that um, I could just do the opposite. Like that didn't seem like a thoughtful way to be a parent as well. Um, and I knew that I didn't want to, you know, beat my kids um, like my parents beat me. Um, like that that didn't seem great either. So, um, so in in a positive way, um, I think it's made me more thoughtful as a parent um, and and as like the adult, you know, the one one of two adults in my my children's lives. Like I think it. Um, it makes me more thoughtful and and hopefully a little bit more aware of the impact that I have on my kids. Um, so that's an upside, I think. Mm, and I thank you for sharing that because, um, yeah, I, growing up, uh, it wasn't the bullies that necessarily scared me. It was really my parents or my dad's mm. uh, more specifically. And And when you are struggling in school with your teachers, with your classmates and and also like outside of your own home it was hard for me to even turn to my parents for help mm -hmm. because yeah. we had experienced <clears throat> uh, the punishment the shame and how can you go to them and even as an adult i still find myself struggling with that um i rarely talk about what i do outside of my own family life because i'm still conditioned in a way to guard myself mm -hmm. from not just the violence but also the mental <clears throat> harm so i'm mm -hmm. i'm constantly in in a defense mechanism stance with them uh, even when they're not trying to be so I, I feel like you know therapy can help with that at least for me it has because i tend to have rage issues um, which mm -hmm. is also why i don't have kids too i i, mm -hmm. I chose um i would never say never on that but i i think that 
when you grow up with so much anger and resentment towards your parents and the way they um my dad grew up with his own resentment it's cyclical and i realized that there were certain patterns that i carried uh from them so um it's it's an it's it's something that we are still uh working through to un to better understand and to find ways to break more of these patterns because it is a lifelong process um there was one part in in this memoir that really hit me particularly hard here and it was the scissors incident mm. on so your father um chased you around with a pair of scissors after you just fell short of the honor roll when you started high school uh, mm. your father proceeds to cut up your records your belongings it was not just a fear of your dad physically threatening you but that he destroyed things that were shaping up your identity the, the things that you love about yourself, the things mm. that keeps you alive. When you look back on this critical moment between you and your father, how did you still find the motivation to continue to do well in school despite your dad's anger? How did you still manage to have some semblance of a relationship with your father? And do you still find it hard to even let that experience go today? Yeah. I, I mean, when it, when it happened at the, in the moment, like, um, you know, that was definitely, um, you know, like even before I wrote the book, like, you know, when I would, you know, talk to my wife about, you know, like we'd be having like a conversation about like sort of like biggest turning points in your life, you know, and, and I would always tell her, I was like, yeah, it was like when my dad tried to like, you know, stab me with scissors and I ran away from home, but I kept going to school. Um, like that was the turning point for me in a, in a huge way. And I, I hope that in the way that the book is crafted, at least it feels like sort of like a, this climactic moment where, um, you know, for me, it was like the realization that, you know, like as I was looking around at my friends, you know, like my sort of like skateboarding punk rock friends and they were just like floundering in school or, you know, getting jobs and, you know, dropping out of high school and just like getting apartments and like smoking weed or, you know, doing whatever. And I was like, well, that's, I don't want that you know, and, um, and I just thought, and, and then my friends who were escaping Carlisle were, you know, joining the army. And I was like, well, I don't really want that either. You know, like, it was just kind of like this, like, narrowing of things where I was like, well, I, I got to go to school. And it was really like, you know, like it, school was like, in, in, in a weird way, like school was a, the safest place for me. Like, it was like the place where, you know, I had some like, I had a, a real sense of identity, like in the classroom, you know, like, that was where, like, I felt like, seen and valued and understood by my teachers and by some of my peers um and so that's really where you know even when when that all went down with my dad i was like you know for whatever reason you know like i think we're we're all wired differently like i just knew i was like you know whatever happens like you gotta keep going to school and like you gotta keep doing well and like and i was able to compartmentalize so i think like just to loop back to you know your question earlier about like about like sort of like a side effect of trauma you know like and and um compartmentalization i think is like a huge sort of um uh result or, or a, a natural outcome of sort of like traumatic experiences that like you just like kind of like box up different parts of your life right and and you know i read this piece a, a little while ago about how you know compartmentalization is just another version of sort of like interper interpersonal violence um and that co compartment compartmentalization like allows you to survive but it's definitely like a survival mechanism it's not like a 
a thriving mechanism because like you don't ever you're not ever fully integrated right as a person because everything is in little boxes so that things don't touch other things because like it's like a live wire so to speak um but anyway um you know i um when i went back to live at my parents house after i ran away from home after that whole incident i um you know, I think my dad just like didn't talk to me for a long time and I didn't talk to him. Like, I think we were just like a ceasefire. And, and at that point, I only had like two more years of high school. So we were just like, you know what, let's just get through this. Like, you know, like I, I don't want to be around you anymore than you want me to be around. And I mean, eventually, like we would have conversations about things, but, um, but I was never, I was never super close to my dad. And I think like that was like really like the big, um, that was kind of like the cliff, you know, that our relationship, well, uh, you know, like I have a functional relationship with my dad now. And, and um, you know, to his credit, like he has tried, he tried to apologize in his own way for being, you know, deficient in his parenting, you know, like in my twenties, he like actually sent me this long letter, like apologizing, but I was still so angry, like in my twenties, like I couldn't, I couldn't even hear it. It was so painful for me to read. And it was, I was so, I remember getting that letter just being so pissed. I was like, cause it just felt like a day late and a dollar short, you know, like, and I was like, what the fuck, you know, like really like, you know, like not in the moment, not like two weeks later, not like six weeks later, like 10 years later, like you're going to send me this, like, I'm sorry letter, you know, like when I'm like a full fledged adult and like living my life and I don't even live with you anymore. And now you're going to apologize. You know, of course, like I hadn't had therapy then. <laughs> so like now I can appreciate, you know, that um, like what that took for him to apologize. And, you know, I mean, for like, an, you know, for a Vietnamese dad, right. To be like, Hey, I'm sorry. I was a shitty dad. Like that's incredible. Um, and I, and I want to give him credit where credit's due. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, we just, we have the relationship that we have, you know, I think like the best thing that's happened for me, really is just to recognize that like I can't ask him to be someone he's not like I can accept the relationship he's, he's able to give me and you know it is what it is and um and there's not a lot of disappointment for me now just because you know I'm not asking him to be like super dad or you know whatever um yeah mm, thank you for so much for sharing this because uh yeah. this resonates with me a great deal with the way you respond to this because you know school was a safe place for me too. Um, I think of my teachers who have actually helped me along the way. And that's actually the reason why I was able to not fall into the dark path that some of my friends, that your friends have also succumbed to, whether it's drug use. And unfortunately, there were some classmates that I knew that died of drug overdose and mm -hmm. got into trouble. And I always think to myself, gosh, I wasn't that far away from that path because I felt like I was ready to snap at some point. But yeah my teachers really did save me from what could be a very difficult path. And, um, and I think that there was no other options. Like, what do I want to be? Because I, in my heart, as you would also share, you're a good person. I, I want to be a good person. I'm not a horrible person. I don't want to be like my dad. I don't want to be like my, my relatives who are doing these horrible, shitty things. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and you talk about how, you were you were struggling in your relationship with them years after right and i mean there was a time when i didn't sp speak to my dad for several years um and and when a father or a parent apologizes you have all kinds of 
reactions because one, you don't expect them to ever apologize. Yeah, That's the right. first thing. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Second, if they do, what is their motive? What are they trying to get out of this? Because mm. they see you graduating college, they see you at least having a decent life. Mm. So are they trying to ask you for anything? from you and i mean those mm -hmm. those are things that you get suspicious of uh, for yeah, other for sure. folks i for mean sure. i can't speak for the whole uh asian american experience here but <laughs> i think that there's suspicions and there's mm. um questions of trust that have already been dismantled and i and it's hard to put that back together because yeah. once that trust has been broken how does it get rebuilt uh and do you have a say in how that trust gets that gets um, rebuilt without mm. having to take on so much emotional labor on your end, mm. you know, while the other person who's the who has caused the harm hasn't really done their part. So um, right. I think that that's uh, such a difficult path. Some people have reconciled uh, for others. It's still ongoing. And, mm. and, and yeah, I mean, I can't tell people to forgive their parents who've been abusive, right? I, mm. That it's on them to figure out what is their best way of healing. Um, this particular um, this particular piece in this book was so troubling to me because it brought back a memory that I never talked about um, in my own life that I felt was hidden, but it was particularly painful for me because uh, in eighth grade graduation, I fell short of the high honor row. And I remembered each student was called whoever got high honor row with honors. And when my name did not have that Randy Kim with high honors, it upset my dad so much that like I did not get a chance to hang out with my friends. My dad took me away with my family and just started berating me, telling me how I was a failure in the car for about an hour and I was crying. And I knew at that point that I could no longer love my dad like that. Mm -hmm. I could no longer go up to him anymore. I could no longer ever want to seek approval from him. So I felt this intense anger towards him that it would result in physical fights where I would overpower him because I was taller by that point. So by that, puberty is a real fucked up thing because mm. when you become stronger than your own parent and what they had just done, it's more mm. like, okay, well, here's my revenge. Here's mm. my, here's, here's your own karma back. And mm. I look back on it, it's mm. like, that was where I was operating from, that I made sure that he was not going to get involved in anything in my own life. Mm -hmm. And I think that carried with me for such a long time. And reading that particular chapter, when he cuts up your favorite records, mm. I cannot imagine. I mean, he didn't go that far, but the berating was enough for me. Mm. The, the the fact that you're being told that you that that he no longer loves you because you can't succeed, that's mm. that's really harmful and mm. and I think that uh, it took me a long time to start to make peace with that because he himself was operating from a lot of trauma in his early life, mm -hmm. and I had to go back and understand his roots. Where is it coming from? Mm. And also. It made me think about my own harm to other people, right? Because you start seeing yourself in him too. And you're like, I don't want to be like my dad, but yet I'm too close to the fire, right? Um, yeah. 
So when you talk about intergenerational trauma, the experiences that you carried through, what behaviors did you inherit from your parents and grandparents? And I know that you had just you know, talked about the uh, breaking the cycle of trauma since you are now dead of two mm. young daughters, but I'd like to get a better sense of what did you inherit from them? <laughs> you saw yourself, oh my gosh, I am causing problems to, whether it's your friends, whether it's to yeah. past loves, your wife, kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I feel like you should be interviewing like all my ex-girlfriends or something to <laughs> tell you. I, I mean, I think I, I was terrible at communicating. Um, I think like early on, I would say this is all like pre-therapy, right? Like I think when I hit my mid thirties, I think that was when I was like, oh, like I need to like sort my shit out, well, you know, or. I'm in that was, same age now. I'm 37. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I was. I think I was like 35, 36 when I started going to counseling to sort of like process all the stuff that happened. And um, yeah, I think I was like really bad at communicating. Um, I had, it's like, I didn't, I sort of had like, you know, I had like the IED temp, you know, like the, like, like, like roadside bomb temper, right. It was like, everything was fine. Everything was fine. And it was like explosive. And I was like, you know, like just lose my mind, like just with anger. I was like a huge, like grudge holder, you know, like, uh, you know, like, um, yeah like you know like uh, just not very forgiving you know and i think worst of all like not very forgiving with myself right like i think i think the thing that you inherit um from that kind of a childhood is you you learn to love yourself least um like that's that's like the longest and most harmful trauma is when you don't feel like you deserve anything and you it's like this kind of like scorched earth policy right where it's like well if my parents are going to hate me i'm going to beat them by hating myself more than they hate me and that's how i'm going to win haha -ha. you know like it's totally perverse right and um because that way like they can't harm you um and uh so there's like yeah there's a lot of healing that had to come from that and a lot of like learning how to like be emotional and express my emotions and express my feelings in a way that's healthy, right? And in a way that's relationship building and relationship strengthening. And it's not about power, right? Um, because I think in, like in my household, like it was like all about power, right? And and power equals violence, right? Like so, um, I think it was about trying to sort of navigate a relationship that isn't around power and power struggles and like dominance and and violence you know like i'm i'm sure shit never gonna like you know i was like i was like i'm not gonna like hit my wife you know when i don't get my way or i'm not gonna hit my wife because like i want to show power over her it's just it just seemed fucked up to me like that it didn't seem healthy um and um you know and i and i understand that like different relationships have different dynamics and but i think like violence <laughs> and domination is not that is not a relationship right that's like master servant or you know whatever i don't know it's not um you're not living a life together right a shared life together which is which is what i wanted um it just seems more it just seems happy right i mean like i think it's all i want it's like i'm like okay how do i live like my best and happiest life right and, and mm. be the best person i can be how do i be the best spouse that i can be how do i be the best parent that i can be right and and that's everything right so like that's the opposite of compartmentalization because i think like you know, we all do better when we all do better, right? So it's like, 
all, if, if I'm a happier person and more content with myself, like I'm going to be a better everything. I'm going to be, be a better teacher. I'm going to be a better tattooer. I'm going to be a better coworker. Um, but, you know, if I hate myself and I'm just like a miserable, you know, son of a bitch, like I'm going to be terrible at all those things. So I, I think like, I think that's like the deprogramming of compartmentalization that, that you may think that, you know, trauma in one place doesn't affect how you are in another place, but it's not true. It's you're the same person, right? Like you're the same person in all those situations. So how could it, how could you, how could you not have like, uh, uh, you know, sort of a wounded past or an unhealed piece of yourself not affect all the other ways that you bring yourself into a situation. Such a beautiful navigation you just shared because like for many of us who still live in the diaspora and who are struggling with, you know, reconciling with their family members, but but really with ourselves, uh, how do we understand our own harm? How do we look into um, loving ourselves? What is about us that keep us going? What what are we most proud of? And it's hard because we are conditioned to not ever feel proud of ourselves because sure. it seems like we're not doing enough. Uh, yeah. There's an imposter syndrome that we carry around. <laughs> there's scarcity mindset that we carry it around too. And those are hard to identify right away until you get really deep into that. Oh no, I'm about to hit to the edge of the cliff here. I'm about to fall off. And yeah. God knows I've gone through that. Um, you know, many times and, and some of my guests who have, you know, shared that and, and I'm glad that you have, you know, worked to identify these uh, problems and recognize uh, where you have fallen short. And uh, what is your relationship like with your daughters? And, and also particularly, uh, also, let's also, I'm interested in your relationship with your mom, because your mom was in a way, seen as an enabler. But also, it's kind of like, she's in a between a rock and a hard place because my mom as close as I am with her. It's very hard because she has allowed in your mind or in our minds that was allowing the violence to happen. But yet she was also the recipient of harm to mm -hmm. from your father and also from her own parents growing up. So mm -hmm. um, I think it's such a complicated issue because you want to be close, but yet you get pulled back because mm -hmm. you, because that parent, that mother figure was not there in your time of need. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I think, I, yeah, I mean, a thousand percent, all the things that you said, I, um, I, and I think I just, uh, you know, I think there's also for me, like the language barrier with my mother, you know, like my Vietnamese is not great, you know, it's like kitchen Vietnamese, you know, so like I have like the fluency of like a second grader, you know, so I don't really, I mean, there are more complicated things that I would love to talk to my mom about, but I just don't have the vocabulary for it. Um, and frankly, I don't know if she would understand. I'm sure she would, but it's just, you know, there. it's it's one of like the small tragedies of like, you know, the diaspora, right? Especially like you go from first generation to second generation or 1.5 to two, it's, um, you're going to lose things, you know, and that's that's one of the sacrifices that we made right by coming here and being alive is that like we lose touch with each other you know in any number of ways um you know and we're reading from different rule books you know like my parents are reading from this like you know confucian filial piety rule book where they're just like kids love their parents no matter what right like no matter what and and my brother and i are reading from this like american western playbook where it's like uh parents don't beat the shit out of their kids you know and like um you know and 
kids can talk to their parents about things, you know, and like, why can't we talk to you guys about it? So it's like, it's just kind of like very, you know, I mean, it is like, a, it's a communication and cultural gap, right? That we just have totally different scripts. Um, and, you know, it's powerful, it's powerful for me to recognize that. Um, but I'm not sure, you know, what we can do at this point. So my relationship with my mom is pretty functional at this point, you know, like, again, like, I mean, it, I'm not estranged from my parents, you know, like they text and call me and, you know, like send my kids gifts and things like that. But, um, but I mean, like I could also go like a month without hearing from them and like, that would be fine too. Like I'm not super close with them. Um, you know, and I think, I think my relationship with my daughters is good. You know, I mean, obviously like I'm, a, you know, like, you, I, you know, like I, I'm not sure, like it, you'd have to ask me that almost like what sort of a dad I am. I, you know, like I think I try to find a sweet spot between being, you know, fun, but also still like having high expectations for them, you know, like, um, you know, like they ask me to play with them all the time, which I, I'm struck by, like, I think that's really cute. And I think about how I never asked my dad to play with me as a kid. So like, you know, that, that obviously isn't the only metric for good parenting, but like the fact that like my kids, you know, they're seven and 10 now, like they still want to spend time with me, you know, they still like, like we do things together, you know, like, I think, I think I'm glad, I think that I have avoided the pitfall of letting the pendulum swing too far the other way, where like, I'm just like, I want to be my kid's best friend and not be a parent and never say no to them and spoil the shit out of them, which I'm definitely not like that either, you know? So like, I think my, my kids probably think I'm a stricter than their friend's parents, which is fine by me. Um, but I'm also, I think like, you know, happy to like, you know, play, you know, have a snowball fight in the backyard or play hide and go seek or, you know, like build Legos with them and watch movies and stuff like that. So I think hopefully it's a good balance. How old are your daughters now? Seven and ten. Yeah. Oh, that's really I'm, cute. Thanks, yeah. thanks. I'm sure they'll have plenty to talk to their therapists about when they get older. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad that uh, you can also share. And I hope that they get to you know read your memoir um, as they get older and have a better understanding. And I know it's also hard to ask your parents to read something that they can't understand. And um, I wonder if there will ever be a Vietnamese translation of this memoir, mm. too. I think it would be interesting. Uh, I'd like to... I like to see how that would be received, especially when yeah. you get into the the different layers that you can't communicate with your own parents because of the language barrier and the broken and how our broken tongue, as my friend pointed out, stings our parents' hearts. Mm. That is mm. something that uh, one of my friends shared on her poem, and mm. I got it, it just hit me incredibly hard because there's a lot of things that I would like to say to my mom, my mm. dad, my grandma who had passed away two years ago, I could never be able to ex to articulate my appreciation for her. Um, mm. And I think that's really incredibly hard uh, when you don't have these opportunities, even though you're still very present, it's, mm -hmm. it's not there for us uh, completely. And mm -hmm. we go through that uh, cycle of of question marks because we don't know enough about our parents and you know which also brings up the 45 year anniversary of the end of the vietnam war and and what comes to your mind when you think about that part of history and your place in it and have you been back to vietnam gosh um i haven't been back to vietnam i you know for a long time i tried to convince my parents to actually go back with me um because i thought like it would be it would be such a rich experience um 
to go back with them and to have them point things out. But my parents are like staunchly like anti-Vietnam right now. Like they will never go back. Like to them, it feels like it's still, you know, occupied by the winners of the war. Um, and, uh, and they just don't want to give any money to the, you know, communist government there. So, um, and you know, what's odd is that my parents are the, like such staunch holdouts for that, you know, like my, my dad's sisters and his brother have gone back. Like my, my dad's brother, my uncle, like bought like a beach house in Vietnam. Like my brothers, my brother and my cousins have gone back. Um, but, um, yeah, so I have not been back. So we were, I was, I, I finally got sick of waiting for my parents and trying to convince them. And I was about to go back and then we had kids. So now I just would rather go with my kids, but I'm going to wait till they're a little bit older. Cause you know, you gotta get like all these shops and stuff to go. So so I will go eventually. So, but I'm I'm like the one person who has not gone uh, in my family yet. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've been back to Vietnam like about ten years ago, but to Cambodia, I have yet to make that visit because it feels too personal for me to go into mm. a country that I have no relatives in. And mm. I think like my friend Anita said it best in like one of my favorite poems, and she said, um, "I will return to a place I have never I have never known that burns a hole inside my heart the size of home." And that mm. hits me incredibly hard for me because my parents don't see their former homelands as home. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was like a part that's still missing, that there's something that I need to go back to. I may not have been born there. I may mm. not be able to speak the language, but there's there's something that that does not complete us in mm. our journey right and i hope that you get that opportunity to yeah, you know, visit uh, vietnam and and also for your kids uh yeah. i think that would also be very important to get a better understanding of how your arrival was and where did that arrival come from um and you also experienced you know racism experience on a microaggressive level and i don't want to take too much time but i will say that when you were looking to publish that op-ed piece in high school calling out a racist classmate <laughs> yeah. Your advisor warned you not to because he told you not to publish that piece and suggested a topic for you that was safe. Now, I was a college um, journalist back in my community college as an 18-year-old, and I remembered um, uh, doing the um, doing a piece on the Southeast Asia Symposium, symposium which I, it was the first time I had learned about the Khmer Rouge genocide. And for me, it felt personal. And I remember my white editor-in-chief said, you know, we're just going to not need this piece. And I wrote a good piece on it, at least from my own heart. And all they kept was the picture of the Opsra dancer that I took that made the front page. Nothing else. And I have to admit, it really started to make me believe that I'm not cut off for this business. Mm. And, um, you know, you know, it made me not want to continue journalism because of that. Yeah. And and I think that to many Asian Americans who are conditioned into silence for fear of retribution, um, this was an example where we are confronted by our values versus our survival. And yeah. how did you process these forms of microaggressions of anti-Asian American behavior in both your community and your field of work? I mean, I think I was just in survival mode, you know, like I think I think when you're in survival mode, which I think you inherit, you know, it's it's the it's your inheritance, right, from from your parents as refugees, right? Like you're, um, you know, like you think about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like it's like 
you're it's very low you're just like food shelter right like don't die and and i think like the the microaggression stuff right is like more about like do i have a place in the community do i have value do people see me for who i am or um you know and and those are those are higher up on the hierarchy like once you've established those <laughs> sort of lower pieces so i think i was just especially in high school like everyone's just trying to survive high school in some form or fashion anyway you know so i think you know, it's like, it's funny, like, I don't, I, I recognize the microaggressions for what they are, you know, I, they didn't land on me that, that hard, only because I also had rednecks who were like trying to like beat me up, like physically, like beat the shit out of me. So like, in my brain, I was like, well, that's, that's clearly like pretty bad. Like I, I would, you know, I'm just going to try and avoid getting beat up or at least fight back. But like, you know, people were just like going to say like shitty racist things to me. I was like, whatever. Like, I mean, you know, you know, in some ways, like those dynamics, um, and this is not to belittle other people's experiences of microaggressions at all. But for me, like, I think I just was like, well, I can either choose to give that power or not, you know, like, like, um, like, I think in, in so many of those situations, uh, you know, I, I'm always thinking about what are, what are the choices for me that give me agency in those things, you know, and and I think in like those microaggressive situations, like I, I just think, well, I can, I can either give that, you know, person power and have it ruin my day or I can just be like, yeah, fuck it. You know what? Like I'm just moving on. I'm going to do my thing. And, you know, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't speak any, it, it doesn't talk about the person, right? Like I'm, it's, it doesn't put me in a position where I'm calling anybody out or asking people to change their behavior. Like I recognize that, you know, but again, I think I'm in just like survival mode. Um, and, and I think in those survival situations, like I think I, you know, I, I was sort of just doing what I could do to get through high school. <laughs> mm. And with that said, any new projects that you're currently working on, will we see a potential uh, sequel to this because I'd like to know about the college years now in your 20s and your oh my God. and you, I mean I know that's a lot because you're still processing this this memoir yeah. Uh, but yeah but also, I also I'm curious to know what 2021 will look like for you and uh, where can you know people really follow up on your work yeah I've got yeah I've got some um, I've got some contributions coming up to, um, in some anthologies hopefully um, so I don't want to say more about that just to I don't want to jinx those. So I've got some two things that are going to be in anthologies. And then um, uh, I'm working, I have some, I have a homework assignment from my agent about some follow-up pieces. You know, I'm not sure if there's going to be like a Saigon part two, the college years or, you know, <laughs> Fuka trying to adult, you know, adulting years. Um, but I've got, you know, I've got some other ideas for sure. Um, and uh, um, I definitely love writing it's it's super hard and super challenging and uh i'm a glutton for punishment so um so there will be something and and maybe some fiction too who knows you know like i think i think that for me like the i feel really um fortunate in in that i'm not you know because i have like tattooing as like my you know main hustle um like i'm not writing for a paycheck which means that like my writing is really coming from a place of passion which i think is where like my best writing is going to come from right like it's like the writing that like has to happen and is super urgent and and sort of um you know sort of like true to the punk rock spirit you know like like i'm, I'm doing it for the art and not for the paycheck so <laughs> Yeah, I, I look forward to uh, uh, reading more about your work too. And and where can uh, people actually follow your social media? 
Yeah, I'm on uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, Luke Skywalker. I like that name. Thanks. <laughs> Love your name. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I think uh, when I was listening to uh, Jerry Wan, you made a note that this is the best way for people to pronounce your name, like yeah. Luke Skywalker instead of Fuck Skywalker. I, <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> although uh, although I kind of like the latter more. I do like the latter more personally. So, um, um, but yeah, last question. I want to say you know before I end this. Uh, you know, I really hope that people get a chance to uh, grab a copy of your memoir, Saigon. I am in love with this memoir. I read it within a week. And I've actually encouraged other of my friends who could identify with this book to grab that copy. And I was having like Instagram uh, messages back, uh, having back and forth with them. Like, oh my God, did you read page 50? Did you read? <laughs> I mean, when you, tell me when you get to the scissors part. Um, but it, it was such an enthralling read for me because it, it's something that I identify so closely to, and especially from a Southeast Asian male perspective, um, it really draws in certain experiences. Like I had different experiences uh, from you, and and I think what you're sharing is not just uh, representative of the the millennial generation X Vietnamese American folks. You're writing from another perspective from your own experiences and there's so many stories that we've you know yet to uncover um but i'd like to ask you now looking back what will you tell your 15 year old self Ooh, what advice would i give my 15 year old self um gosh um i would tell myself to trust myself and um that um yeah to just you know, do the best that I can. Yeah. And that, uh, to listen to myself. Mm. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Gosh, I feel like we can extend this to another hour, but you know, <laughs> Thanks. No, because thank there's you, so Randy. much, yeah, there's so much to uncover, but I really hope yeah. that people take the time to read this memoir and see themselves in these stories and also read the works of other, other Southeast Asian artists, because, um, as time is ticking, uh, with, many of our elders who have survived these um, tragedies during the 70s. Um, it's also important that we not only incorporate their history, but also our history into this as mm. part of our way of documenting our journey and also setting the course for what the Southeast Asian American experience uh, can look like uh, down the road. So I really thank you for bringing this into the universe and what a gift it has been. Wow. So. Thank you, Randy. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, connect with you and follow you on your work. Thanks. Thank you very much. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you.